0: this Easter morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the very next text in our series of sermons from the book of Acts to Acts chapter 21. Once again, we may marvel, I think, at the providence of our Lord bringing us, as He's done so often on one particular holiday or another, to just the right text at just the right time in whatever book of Scripture we happened to be stunning at the time. We've been making our way through the book of Acts now, paragraph by paragraph, for just over a year. And all this time, the Lord had it planned that we would land on just this passage on just this very Easter morning. It's a perfect, uh, perfectly evident to you, of course, that it is Easter uh, today, the annual celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead which every Sunday is the celebration of his resurrection, which took place on the first day of the week. That is why the Christians in the Bible, in Scripture, began to celebrate the Sabbath on the first day of the week, the day of resurrection versus the last day of the week. And we've learned that, of course, even just recently here from the book of Acts. So profoundly important was the resurrection, and is the resurrection of Jesus, and it's not too much to say that it is the very proof that the gospel is true. In fact, the gospel, the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, that is, hangs on this fact. And the proof of the resurrection that the scripture supplies to us is the witnesses. And among those witnesses, one of the most powerful must certainly be the Apostle Paul. This is the second time now, though it will not be the last, that we will read here in the book of Acts of the conversion, the encounter between Paul and the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. The first time was in chapter 9. You might remember, and we read Luke's account there, and now we hear it in Paul's own words Addressing the crowd in Jerusalem. And remember where we've been. Remember just last week. The condition Paul is in now. He is bleeding and bruised and battered because he's taken a terrible beating just now. Just minutes before this from the very crowd that he will address remarkably as fathers and brethren they've just beaten him to a bloody pulp and now he's going to rise this, having been saved as it were by the uh, roman soldiers from almost certain death at the hands of this murderous mob now he's going in rome's chains and under rome's address uh, arrest address this crowd with this news Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you will bless your word. We thank you already for the prayer that's actually already been prayed by Elder Thomas, and that you'd be pleased to answer that now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 21, beginning at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand The people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are in this, uh, are this day. And of course, it was their zeal for the law of God that they thought Paul had sold out on that led them to give him that uh, Royal beating, so he's not underestimating them. They're zealous, that's for sure. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, Whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. It's amazing how certain things creep their way into our minds when it comes to recalling the history recorded in the Bible isn't it, especially around the holidays, ox and ass, uh, camels, nowhere to be found in Scripture's account of Jesus' birth. Nonetheless, firmly impressed on the Christian conscience, uh, consciousness every Christmas by a thousand images of the Nativity. Same with Saul's encounter with Christ, or maybe we should say a better Christ's encounter with Saul. On the road to Damascus, even people only faintly faintly acquainted with this story have fixed in their minds the clearest picture of Paul making his way along the road to Damascus on the back of a horse, right? And when the light around him uh, comes, he falls from his great steed to the ground. Where did the horse come from? Read any of the accounts, the three accounts here in Acts, of Paul's conversion or his recollection of them in his letters, and you will not see a single hoofprint. You'll not hear the faintest whinny. So whence the horse? Well, probably from Michelangelo's fresco in the Pauline uh, Chapel at the Vatican, or Caravaggio's stunning painting, or other works of art like them. Similarly, some false understandings of Paul's actual experience on the road to Damascus have also crept into the picture in the minds of many, only these are of a much more sinister kind. Enemies of the Christian faith have proposed many other explanations. You've heard it said perhaps that Paul uh, suffered some sort of epileptic fit or had an hallucination, or or suffered sunstroke on his way to Damascus. We know all of those, of course, are as much figments of the imagination as Caravaggio's horse. None of those theories can possibly account for the history that followed this encounter between Paul And Jesus, or the stupendous consequences that have reverberated all these centuries right down to our own day. When you consider uh, what has risen out of this encounter between Christ and Saul, somehow you've got to account, you see, for the Christian Paul, the Titan of the faith, his life, his teachings, his writings all offered in service to the Lord, Jesus Christ, whom he himself claimed over and over again to have met so wonderfully and so unexpectedly on the road to Damascus. To that notion that Paul's experience can be explained as some sort of natural event uh, occurring in his brain, the German Scholar Beischlag offered this jabbing response O oh, blessed drop of blood, which by pressing at the right moment upon the brain of Paul produced such a moral wonder. In other words, the change is just too great. The consequences of this encounter so overwhelmingly deep and wide, far too much so to write it off as some sort of merely internal experience in a man named Saul. I think about the facts here a little bit. Paul was no friend, had been no friend to Christianity. As a matter of fact, he was known and he was feared far and wide for his vicious hatred toward and persecution of these people of the way, as he called them in verse four. Ananias, we remember from verse nine, I mean chapter nine rather, knew Saul's reputation. Remember that? Knew his reputation, which is why he was so terribly afraid when God said to him, Go to Saul, he was scared to death. How much evil this man has done to your saints, he objected. I've learned I've heard about him from so many, Lord. And here he has the authority from the chief priests, and Ananias went on to say, to bind everyone who calls on your name. Fact is, Saul was, when Jesus appeared to him, he was actually en route to round up Christians, many of whom had fled from Jerusalem, to capture and extradite them, bring them back to Jerusalem to face trial and likely death. But he, this Saul, known better to us, of course, by his Greek name, Paul, who once breathed after the blood of the followers of Christ, would become one of Christ's very best champions. Proclaiming Christ, planting churches for Christ, confounding the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ, and ushering Gentiles, into the kingdom with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, he had left Jerusalem heading for Damascus, believing that the Christian message was nothing more than a fraud, a a manufactured deceit. Believing that the resurrection of Christ was nothing more than the machinations of some dispirited little movement soon to be crushed. But by the time he arrived at Damascus, he was utterly and completely convinced of the opposite. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the only way for salvation for sinful human beings, and that he was alive. Paul's own explanation for this see change, seems to remain the only plausible one that he had met, that he had been met by and seen the resurrected King Jesus. Every other possible alternative really uh, falls flat by way of explanation, doesn't it? As the modern German New Testament scholar, Kummel, observed Given the inadequacies of the other alternative explanations, quite simply, we must take Paul's own statements seriously. We must indeed. And all the more, given the fact that Paul's conversion obviously involved the intelligent and deliberate surrender of his own will to Jesus Christ. That it produced in Paul such extraordinary goodness. Beischlag's moral wonder. Teaching and living that is far, far from fraud or deceit or confusion as it possibly can be. All of this made more compelling, of course, by the fact that Paul was willing to suffer so. Terribly for this message and for the sake of Jesus' name. We've seen in our studies over the past several months now, haven't we? Paul's ministry greeted with disgust and disdain, often with open hatred and opposition, beatings, stonings, left for dead. Even while he was still in Damascus before he even got out of Damascus, his first city where he was a Christian. The Jews are plotting his murder at the gates, and so he ends up humiliatingly being lowered out of the city through the wall in a basket from the very start of his ministry. He was arrested, he was imprisoned, he was tortured, he was hated by Jew, by Greek. Add to these outright oppositions, he also faced all the dangers of traveling in those days. The bandits on the Roman roads, the dangers of the, sh- of the sea, shipwrecked three times, once spending a day and night at open sea. Add all of that and you have a life full of suffering and difficulty and pain. And finally, finally his head was lifted from his shoulders by Nero's blade, precisely because of his loyalty to the one who had met him and transformed him on that road to damascus some 30 years earlier no no my friends these are these are not the result of sunstroke paul had seen the living christ resurrected from the dead And that's why he had very little patience for those who denied the resurrection. Especially those who did their best to turn the churches that he loved and that he had many of them planted from sharing his confidence. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes what's probably the best known chapter of Scripture outside of the Gospels on this matter of the resurrection. It's Paul's great apologia. His defense of the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead and therefore of those who trust in him for their own resurrection as well. When false teachers made claims in his day very much like they do today, when they said things like, well, Paul just experienced some sort of, you know, ecstatic religious thing out there on the road. It wasn't really an objective encounter with the person or Christ certainly. Or even the resurrection is really just spiritual... What baloney is still taught today in churches all over the place. It's really just a spiritual resurrection, not a bodily, physical resurrection. Paul didn't mince his words. He took them and he takes us to the courtroom. He summons his witnesses, one after another, after another, to testify what they have seen with their ordinary physical eyes. The risen Christ, he argues, beginning at verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 15, appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. He appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, he wrote, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. These were not private, religious, ecstatic experiences. Paul was saying that these are simply normal sightings of Jesus, just like you're looking at me and I at you. Private and public events that could be scrutinized through witnesses and testimony and evidence, these people could be interrogated, their testimony could be corroborated. What is more, if we had the time we 'd continue on in first Corinthians fifteen to hear Paul say what uh, say, speak of the uh, physical resurrection that uh, they were confident of that they were confident of not only in christ 's um, um, part but in their own as well that they would rise from the dead as demonstrated by and based upon the demonstrable physical resurrection of Jesus Christ first now all of this talk of seeing and experiencing face to face encounters with Jesus Christ might leave you with the impression that other encounters with the risen Christ must somehow be inferior. That your own, your own experience with Christ, if you're a Christian today, is much less impressive. But remember this, that for all of the witnesses, and there were hundreds of them, they really represent only a tiny little part, a drop in the bucket, really, of the vast multitude of Christians who fall into that blessed majority that Jesus described to doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas? I won't believe till I see, till I touch. Jesus says, Here, look, here's, feel the holes in my hands, look at the hole in my side, feel, reach out, Thomas, and, and touch. Do not disbelieve, but believe. But remember what he goes on to say to Thomas after Thomas does believe, and this is the word intended for you. He says, Have you believed, Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are they, blessed are you, Jesus was saying. Our Lord has continued to confront and transform human beings to this very day. Even those bitter and hostile enemies, as hostile as Saul was that day on the road to Damascus. Listen to this account of a man by the name of William Hone. He was known, William Hone was, as an arch-blasphemer of England in the first half of the 19th century. Hone was such an outspoken critic of Christianity and so harsh in what he said against it and against contemporary Christians that he was actually arrested for it. They could arrest people and did in those days for such things. He wrote scurrilous parodies of the Christian creeds and some of the prayers of the Church of England. He hated Christianity, he hated Christians, and he did whatever he could to mock both. But in the most surprising and unexpected way, William Hone was suddenly and powerfully transformed by Christ's encounter with him. It is, in some ways, of course, less miraculous than the encounter uh, that uh, Saul had on the Damascus Road, but it's just as real and the very same Lord Jesus Christ who met him. The man who had spent his life doing what harm he could to the Christian faith as a result of that encounter with Christ devoted his remaining years to preaching the message he had once sought to destroy. And he wrote these lines in commemoration of his coming to believe in Jesus and being transformed by him. The proudest heart that ever beat has been subdued in me. The wildest will that ever rose to scorn thy cause or aid thy foes is quelled, my God, by thee. Most glorious Savior, here I see a trophy of thy grace, such as should ever silence those who would thy majesty oppose and dare thee to thy face. Thy will, and not my will, be done. I'd be forever thine, confessing thee the living word, my Savior, Christ, my God, my Lord. Thy cross shall be my sign. Sort of transformations still continue today for the simple reason that Jesus is risen from the dead. And he still continues to arrest whom he will in their tracks by the work of his Holy Spirit. Jesus lives. He lives. And here's the thing. My friends, he can transform you too. You who remain hostile to him, You who have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus, the resurrected Christ, may find yourself one day, maybe just as suddenly as Saul did, calling him things like Lord and Savior, and gladly suffering the ridicule of others, or worse, because your love. For him who loved you first drives you also to proclaim him and to spread this glorious message to others. He's in the habit of doing this sort of thing, Jesus is, you see. You find the notion perhaps ridiculous, but that is because, and only because, you've not met him yet. Though he may already be working on you, He may be goading you even today, but you're still fighting him. I say that because Paul recalls the same Damascus Road encounter later on in the book of Acts, Lord willing, we'll get to that, before King Agrippa. And he adds this curious line. He adds that when they had all fallen to the ground and they heard the Lord speaking to him in Hebrew, he he says the Lord went on to say to him this, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> what does that mean? Strange sort of expression, kick against the goads, until you understand. And maybe some of you with some agricultural farming background, you already know what this is. It's a sort of instrument of some sort, prickly or sharp, that was used to keep farm animals moving in a certain direction. And sometimes a particularly stubborn animal like a donkey would kick against those sharp goads and sometimes even injure itself in the process. do not It's hard for you to kick against the goads, he says to Paul. I, I can't help but think that the implication of Jesus' words here is that he'd already been working on Paul a little bit, maybe. But Paul... Saul, as you please, was resisting. He'd already been coming under conviction. Even as he was persecuting them, even as he witnessed Stephen's execution, he was kicking against the goads. The goads that said that Jesus, this Jesus, he did rise from the dead. That Stephen was not dying because he was imagining things as Saul held his garments and watched him being stoned but because Jesus had risen from the dead. But Paul was stubborn. Saul, just like many people are today, they prefer to rebel rather than submit to Christ. Now, you may do that. Of course you may. That is up to you. But it's miserable to resist, isn't it? It's hard, as God said, as Jesus said, it's hard to kick against the goads. Now, I'm not going to say that the alternative is easy, being a Christian. Paul is living evidence of the fact that the Christian life, I mean the genuine Christian life, the real Christian Christian life is hard. It is. And it brings suffering. And it brings sacrifice. And it brings pain. But I can assure you of this, my friends. It's a whole lot better than kicking against God's goads. Why continue to, to resist? If you're sensing today that the Lord is calling you to Himself, why keep fighting Him? Be encountered by Him, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Come face to face with Him and be transformed the way Saul was transformed, from the inside out. Have your heart changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Come to Him. Come after Him, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow the risen King Jesus today. Amen.